Good evening. The next lecture in this series is on Monday the 25th of March. No, that's wrong. It's on Monday the 18th of March, isn't it? And it's David McKittrick from the University Library at uh, Cambridge, Cambridge, England, talking on writing the history of the University Library. He is engaged in writing the history of a particular University Library at the moment, that of his own library, Cambridge. On the 25th of March, the announced speaker, Anthony Hobson, remains the same. His announced topic is, however, changed. I suggested to him that a speech entitled Bookbindings Past, Present, and Future, or rather Bookbindings Ancient, Medieval, and Modern, uh, was, a, was a splendid sort of thing for him to give here, and I hope that Paul Needham and Bernard Breslauer and Robert Nykirk would enjoy it as much as I would. And he has now changed his topic. <laughs> he is now talking on appropriations of French revolutionary and empire period book bindings into England, which should be simply splendid. That's on Monday, the 25th of March. And there will be lectures every week thereafter for a very long time. <laughs> The expanded course description statements for Rare Book School are finished, and they will be going out to the friends sometime this week and be available shortly thereafter to anyone who wants one. There are copies of that posted on the board opposite both elevators if anybody's interested in seeing a good picture of James Mosley. And this evening, our speaker is Ken Rendell of Kenneth W. Rendell who has spoken here many times before, I'm happy to say, and who needs no introduction to this audience. It's a great pleasure to have him here. One uh, point that I wanted to make first is that uh, the remarks that I have to say tonight um, uh, not in any way to be construed as an interview. I had considerable problem last year while speaking to a private club in Chicago, the Caxton Club, to find most of what I had to say as a feature story in the Chicago Sun-Times the following week. And uh, I like to know when I'm speaking on the record and when I'm speaking off the record. The night of May 1st, I was reading a proof copy of the next day's Newsweek in the bar of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Washington. I was awaiting the arrival of Newsweek's editor, Maynard Parker, with whom I would be appearing later that evening on the Larry King Show. Having steadfastly avoided publicity in the past, and initially refusing Newsweek's overtures, I had finally agreed to work with them on this as their special consultant on the Hitler Diaries. As I reflected on the previous week's news stories, the bizarreness of the circus created both by the historians and journalists stunned me. The thrust of the news media's coverage should have been the need to physically examine the diaries. Unfortunately, it was diffused into speculations, many wild and absurd, of historians and others. After seeing the illustrations in Stern's first issue several days before, it was evident that some, and probably all, of the diaries were fakes. I needed only the physical evidence to prove this conclusively and complete my assignment for Newsweek. Being unfamiliar with the needs and criteria of the news media, I could not understand the public attention being given to the Hitler diary story. More importantly, I could not understand how a major European publishing house 
had been swindled out of approximately $5 million. How could Newsweek, the Murdoch organization, Pari March, and others have invested so much time, effort, and money in pursuing publication rights to such outrageous fakes? How had such bad forgeries become such a great hoax? The paper, ink, and handwriting were not the key elements in the success of the Hitler diary hoax. The human elements of ambition, secrecy, and greed propelled these inept forgeries into a major journalistic scandal. For the hoax to be successful, it was necessary to overcome many journalistic and business checkpoints, and these were overcome by the emotional reactions of the victims themselves. At many points, the hoax could have and should have unraveled. But once out of the hands of the forger, the victims carried the hoax onto the front pages of magazines and newspapers throughout the world. Conrad Kujau, in an appropriate pose here, <laughs> a Stuttgart dealer in military memorabilia and documents, has now admitted being the forger of the diaries. He originally stated that Stern reporter Gerd Heidemann had conspired with him in creating the forgeries, but later changed his story. It's now been changed again. A comparison of the handwriting in the diaries shown above here and that of Kujau below makes it virtually certain that, the, that Kujau forged all of the material in the diaries and journals. There is also evidence that Kujau had successfully forged Hitler handwriting previously. In 1978, he showed a German historian a poem allegedly written by Hitler in 1916, as well as a diary purportedly by the dictator. The following year, the historian discovered that the poem was composed in 1936 by someone other than Hitler. Kujau replied that it had been recovered with other papers from a plane crash near Bornersdorf, the same town in which Heidemann would claim four years later that the Hitler diaries had been recovered. The handwriting in the Hitler diaries, shown here, is certainly one of the most inept attempts to imitate another's writing which I have encountered. The forger either failed to observe or to imitate the most fundamental characteristics of Hitler's handwriting. Obtaining the materials to create the forgeries was accomplished with an equal lack of skill. Even superficial research into Hitler's personal habits would reveal that he always used beautifully bound leather writing folders and desk appointments. The imitation leather notebooks, which are shown here with their crude wax seals, shown here, are almost comical. They are only overshadowed by such colossal errors as making mistaking an F for an A in selecting the large metal initials to put onto the cover of one diary. This is actually published in Stern, uh, supposedly as A-H on the cover. I had seen that illustration. I thought it was for Fuhrer headquarters. And when someone said, that's, no, that's for Adolf Hitler, uh, you realize they couldn't read any form of German uh, prior to about 1950. Well, inept at creating the diaries themselves, Kujau and his conspirator or conspirators was very clever in assembling together what historians would likely have found if indeed trunks of Hitler's personal possessions had survived the war. Among the items supposedly contained in this archive were a number of artworks by Hitler, including finished and unfinished watercolors, an oil painting, drawings of Eva Braun and of his parents, his Iron Cross from the First World War, other medals, letters from Martin Bormann and Rudolf Hess, 
written to Hitler. In his outline of the program of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, dated February 1920, I was originally told by Newsweek that a large quantity of original photographs by Hitler's personal photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, had also been found with the diaries. The photographs had been authenticated by Newsweek's photo experts. These are the illustrations here. I was later told that this was an error in translation. These photographs had been obtained from another source, not from the plane crash. The existence of all of this other material certainly lent a great deal of circumstantial credibility to the diaries and significantly contributed to the diaries' initial acceptance by journalists and historians. As with the creation of Hitler's personal archive, Kujau was much more clever in creating the content of the diaries, shown here. He relied upon a book privately printed in 1962, as well as the Nazi Party daily newspaper for his facts. It was a shocking failure of the historians directly and indirectly involved in commenting on the diaries that none of them discovered that the diaries, diary entries coincided exactly with this book. Entries appear only for the days included in the book. Kujau's subjective comments were later criticized by knowledgeable aides and others who accurately knew of Hitler's personal opinions. But these were, were for some time accepted by both historians and journalists as being the genuine opinions of Hitler. The text, it was seemed, was written more with popular journalism in mind than historical scrutiny. While generally considered dull and lacking depth when considered in toto, the forger certainly created a view of Hitler which fascinated journalists and the public when condensed and summarized. Stern, in a memorandum to Newsweek, wrote, quote, the biography of the dictator and also the history of the National Socialist State must in large measure be rewritten. The journal containing Hitler's version of the flight of Rudolf Hess to England in 1941 is certainly not lacking in depth, nor in imagination. Stern planned three issues devoted to Hess's flight and Hitler's relationship with the English based on this journal, which bore the notation on the cover, Top Secret, Property of the Fuhrer, always to be kept under lock and key. Bormann, according to Hitler, wanted to make peace with the English, in part because he felt a common heritage with them, but principally because he wanted to devote his energies to the war with the real enemy, Russia. The diaries do present Hitler in a somewhat more acceptable light than many would agree with. It is perhaps an image which many Germans born during or after the war can find more palpable. It was certainly in the forger's interest to portray Hitler neither as monster nor as munificent leader, but rather as a leader whom the German people put into power at a time of very great economic hardship, a leader who would repudiate the terms imposed upon Germany at the end of the First World War, a leader who might only be guilty of not controlling his fanatical followers. Had the forger gone too far in lessening the madman image, they would have been suspect on that basis alone. Instead, Kujau created an image which many people would want to believe. The notations about the nationwide anti-Jewish riots in 1938 are indicative of a revised Hitler when he is quoted as complaining about the, quote, fanatics who have caused millions and millions in damage to the German economy, and I don't just mean the broken glass. Hitler frequently makes entries concerning the, quote, Jewish problem, end quote, 
but suggests that Germany could ship them to other countries. The final solution in the diaries was his notation that perhaps Hungary or another area in the East could be given to the Jews so that they could settle there and feed themselves. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, comes under severe criticism in these diaries. Quoting from Stern's memo describing the diaries, quote, Hitler's attitude towards Heinrich Himmler ranges from gruff to antagonistic. He feels that Himmler is spying on him, mistrusts the SS chief's mythical idealization of the Germanic people, and doubts his military capabilities. Hitler writes, this duplicious animal breeder with his drive for power still has a lot to learn from me. In another section, Hitler is quoted as writing, Himmler is living in another world. I'm beginning to think he's out of his head. Again, following the invasion of Poland, Hitler notes in the diary that he gave Himmler strict instructions not to carry out any reprisals against the Polish population. Quote, the merciless treatment of Polish civilians under the German occupation, an instance of high-handedness by subordinates, is this a macabre confirmation of the popular saying, if the Fuhrer only knew about this? Whether through conscious efforts or from subconscious ideological beliefs, Hitler's instigation of the atrocities of the Third Reich was at least partly shifted to these fanatical followers. The provenance of the diaries was by far the most elaborately fabricated part of the hoax. Perhaps, and actually I think probably because of Heidemann's experience as an investigative journalist, reporter for Stern, the story of the diary's survival, preservation, and discovery by him could not be disproven, and it appeared to be corroborated by other sources. It had been well known that as the Russian army closed around Berlin, Martin Bormann activated the plan to move personnel and materials to Hitler's retreat south of Salzburg. The night of April 20th, 1945, 10 planes were loaded with personnel and freight. Hans Bauer, Hitler's chief pilot, in his book, I Piloted the Mighty of the World, refers to the loss of one of these planes which left on April 20th. Quote, we received reports that all planes had landed, all except Gundelfingers. All efforts to loca locate the plane were in vain. When I reported to Hitler, he was very upset because in that very plane was his servant, Arndt. Hitler stated, I entrusted him with extremely important files and papers that were supposed to testify to my actions for posterity. For a long time, Hitler couldn't calm down. The loss seemed to move him profoundly. It seems very likely that the idea for the story of the diary's survival may have come from this entry in Bauer's book. That book, incidentally, was published in the early 1960s, so couldn't have any part in what went on uh, subsequent to that. The saga of the hoax now focuses on Stern's investigative reporter, Gerd Heidemann, who is still in tri on trial in Hamburg, Germany. A 31-year veteran of the magazine, Heidemann's journalistic ethics were unquestioned by his editors, who had assigned him to many major stories over the years. It is not yet clear exactly what Heidemann's role in the hoax was. The present situation is that Heidemann says he had no role in it, that he handed over all of the $5 million to Kujau. Kujau said that they conspired together and that he received uh, something like $500,000 or a million dollars but he spent it all on champagne and really doesn't have any idea where the rest of it is. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, all of the money has disappeared. The trial, which is most entertaining, and if you're in Europe, there's a report on it every day in one of the papers. Uh, Kujau, before Christmas, was offering to write out sections of the Hitler diary for Christmas presents, and you could buy these on the way into court each day. 
We had dinner with Trevor Roper in October in London, and Trevor Roper was trying to impress upon me how dull-witted a man Heidemann was, and really the impossibility that he could have really dreamed up very much of this, and how boring he was. And I picked up the uh, uh, London Times the next morning, on the front page it said, Hitler diary judge falls asleep. And <laughs> after about four weeks of testimony, and this was actually the third time that the judge had fallen asleep, but he didn't wake up on his own accord. Uh, the people in the gallery were shouting at him to wake up. And Heidemann, Heidemann kept saying, who, me? <laughs> so it'll be interesting when the thing finally comes down as to what the judgment. But that's where it currently stands. It drones on day after day. Interesting. Continue on. I'll fill the rest of that in at the end. Whether he was pursuing a former Nazi's reference to the existence of the diaries, as reported by Stern, which led him first to Bauer's book and then to an investigation of the plane's flight and crash, or whether Heidemann pursued the story of the missing plane to provide a history of the diary's survival isn't really known. This is the uh, flight of the plane starting in, in Berlin at the top, uh, the flight route, and it crashed in Bornestorf. There was a book done about 1960 called The Bunker, written by two Americans in German. And they attempted to find the airplane. Uh, and they had searched in the, in the Alps, where everyone assumed the plane would have gone down. But the great surprise was that the plane had been shot down almost immediately after taking uh, off from Berlin, which is when no one had thought of looking uh, in, in East Germany. Heidemann did discover this crash site, located the graves of the pilot and Hitler's servant Arndt. This is more on the more local detail. Here's the crash site. And these are the graves as they are right now. He uh, could document from the graves that these were the people who were on the plane. He interviewed local people who recalled the crash, and they claimed that there was a great deal of gold on the plane, which was taken by local people, and that there was money in papers. Regardless of whether Heidemann was creating a story of the diary's history, or whether the diaries were offered to him as a result of his investigation, this story is very logical, reasonably well-documented, and very believable. It's at this point in the story that Heidemann ventures into events which could not be documented, even if true, which it turns out they were not. In Stern's memorandum to Newsweek, 32 pages are devoted to the history of the diaries. In several brief paragraphs, commencing after 28 pages describing the search for the plane's crash site, Heidemann's story leaps from the firm foundation of the discovery of the crash site to the questionable existence of the Hitler diaries. Having meticulously traced the investigation of the airplane's route, the passengers, the cargo, and its fate, Stern's memorandum continues, quote, Heidemann gets a few tips about who might possess materials from the crashed aircraft. For months, Heidemann searches in East and West Germany and among former Nazis, such as SS officer Klaus Barbie in South America, in order to find out what else could have been in the airplane. Most of the information takes him no further, but then comes a tip which interests him. There is talk of a metal chest which might have contained many little composition books inscribed property of the Fuhrer, private notebooks. At first, Heidemann doesn't believe that because no one can show him one of these books. But then the evidence piles up. There may have been at least 50 books on the seal, the imperial swastika. The tips were correct. The books exist. First, they are hidden in the vicinity of the crash site, then placed in safekeeping by a German officer. 
Those who found them, so it turns out, were aware of the value of the volumes. Nevertheless, the books were held back for a long time out of fear, out of lack of knowledge about the right way to an historical evaluation. Stern is not allowed to reveal the names of those who in April 1945 salvaged Hitler's diaries when they were hidden, or how they got to the West. The earlier owner made it a condition that the anonymity remained preserved. That's almost comical, I mean, when you come right down to it, that uh, they're asking Newsweek for three and a half million dollars, and that is the explanation of how these diaries came to exist. The plane crash story is very good, but uh, the whole explanation was very, very thin, which is partly why I came into it. Uh, the next stage was Stern advised Newsweek that the diaries were coming from a source in East Germany who would be in physically endangered if identified. This is the next quotation. I was startled that nobody had tried to look for the diaries before, said Heidemann. All it took was a few telephone calls and a few meetings with old Nazis, and the rest was easy. Stern would never provide any additional information beyond that statement. When you take an overview at this point, it, there was, this was certainly a plausible story. The, it was well known and documented that the, the flight of personnel and cargo bound for the Opus Salzburg went right at the end of the war, April 20th. Heidemann's investigation leading to the previously unlocated crash site, it was well known that he was associating with many uh, ex-Nazis. His efforts to locate the diaries that he learned of from these ex-Nazis, unveiled in the mystery of the world of these exiled Nazis in modern East Germany, the discovery and acquisition of the diaries themselves. It was convincing enough for the chairman of Stern's parent company to pay out between four and five million dollars in cash. In the handwritten ledger shown here, the chairman recorded in January of 1981 a payment of 200,000 Deutschmarks to Gerd Heidemann for the first of the Hitler diaries. Heidemann had approached the chairman rather than the chief editors of the magazine, he said, because only the chairman could authorize such large payments in cash. Whether intentional or not, Heidemann was also to have his story accepted by the chairman without the normal journalistic scrutiny and skepticism that the chief editors hopefully would have viewed them with. Heidemann's involving a man with a business rather than journalistic orientation was very fortuitous for the success of the hoax. The chairman accepted the diary's authenticity and his own personal opportunity to acquire for his company's magazine such a colossal scoop with little more than Heidemann's own word. It was not until May of 1982 that the diaries were examined for authenticity by three handwriting experts. By then, slightly more than five million Deutschmarks had been paid to keep acquiring the volumes. This is Heidemann. The need for secrecy played a major role at Stern. The chairman and Heidemann did not inform anyone of the diary's existence until editor-in-chief Peter, Peter Koch insisted that Heidemann investigate the attempted assassination of the Pope. It was only then that he and chief editor Felix Schmidt were brought into the story. Meanwhile, Heidemann reported bizarre exchanges of Stern's cash for individual diaries. He would throw packages of currency into a passing car in East Germany. The two cars would then stop at either end of the road. They would then pass each other going the other way, and the driver would in turn toss a diary back into Heidemann's car. It is, when you look at this in retrospect, it's impossible to believe that it happened. In the aftermath of all this, all of the participants would state that the responsibility for verifying the diary's authenticity was someone else's. Heidemann saw his role as only one of acquiring the diaries. 
Within several days of the hoax being exposed, he stated, I never said don't examine the notebooks. I limited myself to supplying them. Of course the first notebooks could have been examined immediately. Koch and Schmidt, the editors of Stern, were reportedly told that the authenticity had been verified before they were brought into the story. It is known that in May of 1982, a year and a half after Stern began acquiring the diaries, that they approached the Federal Archives in Germany and two well-known handwriting experts, one in Switzerland and one in America. This was very reasonably done. They asked the Bundesarchiv to recommend the three best people to examine the diaries, and Stern went to these people. To prevent the disclosure of the diaries' existence, which would be a news story in itself, these three experts were shown only three original pages, which were not from the actual diaries, but were from separate journals. Two pages contained Hitler's statement concerning Rudolf Hess and his flight to England, a known text, and the third was a telegram, again, a known text. Any d anyone divulging the content of this, therefore, would not be in any way indicating that something new had been discovered. None of the experts were told that their opinion would be extrapolated to prove the authenticity of approximately 60 volumes, or just what was at stake. Stern provided all three with copies or originals of Hitler writing, which they stated was known to be genuine. This is one of those examples. Some of the examples were actually from the German Federal Archives, but others were obtained from what was discovered to be labeled the Stern-Heidemann dossier. This is an example. The examples from the archives were almost without value for comparison purposes. Several were pencil notes, and the others were only signatures. The examples which the experts principally relied upon were those traced to the Stern-Heidemann dossier. They were not, however, told that they came from a separate group of papers. This is another example that they used as for comparison purposes. <coughs> all of the examples that they actually relied upon, this whole series in here, are all written by the forger. <laughs> and they're also the types of things that Hitler simply never did. I mean, Hitler never wrote inscriptions on pictures of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, he didn't sign hokey type things. The situation is difficult to comprehend. Stern, in attempting to accomplish objective verifications of the diaries, shows their experts only three pages, and then gives them examples which came from the same source, their reporter, as the diaries did. The three experts, on the other hand, naively accepted Stern's word that they, what they were being given were genuine examples. In two cases, the experts noted the differences in the signatures of the supposedly genuine examples but stated that the preponderance of evidence in the long handwritten letters and signed photographs was sufficient to declare the question pages genuine. There was certainly a complete lack of suspicion, a quality much which must always be present. I would just add here that this whole thing of handwriting analysis, there are in a sense different um, groups of people who, who do authentication type work, and the group that uh, is constantly in the news uh, which, who do insurance forms and wills. These were the type of people that were approached. They didn't approach anyone who deals in historical papers or anyone with any knowledge of how to date paper or date ink. They went uh, strictly for people who do ransom notes uh, types of things, the kind of people who do the Howard Hughes will uh, where you can easily hire 20 people uh, to, to come up with any opinion you want. You just hire them for either side of the case. And this essentially was the type of situation which they had. 
I was paid, actually, to go and speak to their group the year after the Hitler Diaries, which I thought was very sporting. Uh, I thought my talk should be how you guys screwed it up. Um, but actually, I, I was preceded by two of the people, one of them has since died, two of the people who did authenticate the Hitler Diaries. And essentially, they just were much too careless. And you have to wonder how many other things go by on the same basis. As with the great leap from the proven fact of the, the plane crash to the existence of the diaries, the importance and relevancy of the authentications was significantly enhanced and embellished by Stern. In offering the publication rights of the Hitler diaries to various publishing houses, Stern dealt with the subject of, of authentication with the following statement. The sensational discovery of the books almost four decades after the collapse of the Third Reich must also create doubt, not only about the credibility of the content, but about the authenticity of the texts. Stern showed three independent experts an ex excerpt from the diaries. The origin of the text was not mentioned. The only thing to be examined was whether it had been written by Adolf Hitler personally. As materials for comparison, five samples of Hitler's writing the authenticity of which is undisputed, were available from the inventories of the Bundesarchiv in Koblenz. The famous American expert, Ordway Hilton, by comparing the handwriting between the diary and the Koblenz documents, concluded, quote, it was written by Hitler. The staff experts for the Federal Archives in Koblenz ascertained on the basis of the documents presented, quote, with a probability bordering uncertainty, the manuscripts in, questions in question come from Hitler. And one of the most prominent European handwriting authorities stated, quote, the range of forms and the psychological characteristics of authentic handwriting features and signatures of Adolf Hitler also occur in precisely the same configuration in the documents examined. There can be no doubt that these documents were written by Adolf Hitler personally. The English historian Trevor Roper, the author of The Last Days of Hitler, looked the diaries over. Trevor Roper considered Heidemann's discovery to be, quote, the most important event of contemporary history within the last decades, and a journalistic coup without parallel. This was the statement that was given to Newsweek, and presumably to Time magazine, who was also in on the bidding, and Murdoch, Parry March, and others. Perhaps this statement represents what Stern's editors would like the authentication reports to have said, but it certainly is not what they did say. <coughs> The three pages which were authenticated were not from the diaries themselves, as stated by Stern, but from separate journals. Whether or not these pages were authentic was only of circumstantial value in considering the diaries. Most importantly, contrary to Stern's direct statements, the experts were not only given a substantial number of genuine items, which did not come from the Federal Archives, but the items originally originated with Heidemann or with Stern. Also directly contradicted in the experts' reports to Stern is their statement that conclusions of authenticity were based upon comparison with the Federal Archives documents. Two experts clearly stated that they principally relied upon examples which they identified and which were traced not to the Federal Archives group, but to the Heidemann-Stern dossier. This is a later statement from one of these uh, people. Newsweek's cautious confidence in the diary's authenticity certainly appeared to be well-founded. It was reasonable to assume that Stern would have investigated every aspect of the literary property which they were asking $3.5 million for. That was just for the American rights. Murdoch bought the Sunday Times rights for $500,000, and then you had Parimach, you had the Italian rights, 
the Australian rights went on. It was a $10 million package altogether. The atmosphere in Maynard Parker's office, the editor of Newsweek, the morning of April 16th, when I first met with him, certainly reflected a cautious optimism. Parker had been to Zurich, where the diaries were, and Hamburg several times to see the diaries and negotiate the publication rights. Four days earlier, he had been in Zurich with Professor Gerhard Weinberg, whom Newsweek had hired as a consultant. While Weinberg was somewhat cautious in his report to Parker, which I was shown that morning, it was clear that he believed the diaries were likely to be authentic. In his published report, shown here, he noted the problem of Stern having had only three pages authenticated. And then, like the other historians who would become involved as the story unfolded, speculated outside of his field of expertise, quote, the notion of anyone forging volumes and volumes of diaries seemed very unlikely. The idea of forging hundreds, even thousands of pages of handwriting was hard to credit. One of the unusually striking things was that on almost every page, Hitler had signed his name at the bottom. A signature is one thing that can be checked with certainty. It seemed very implausible that anyone forging handwriting would forge gratuitously the one aspect of the handwriting that is most easy to check. He added later, there is still room, however unlikely, for suspecting the whole thing is a hoax. Perhaps because Newsweek had not as yet engaged a handwriting expert, Weinberg felt compelled to consider not only the historical text of the diaries, but the physical questions of authenticity as well. He would unfortunately be joined by many others in the coming weeks. Most of what Weinberg said was just irrational. I went through the complete report that he gave, and I could find something wrong with every reason he said they were fake and every reason he said they were genuine. Uh, he apparently never heard of the Clifford Irving, Howard Hughes uh, autobiography, when he said that you wouldn't, uh, no one would ever forge hundreds of pages. There have been so many literary forger forgeries over the years, and forgers g gain a confidence and then get very carried away, and they have no problem signing anyone's name. Uh, there's a lot of ego involved in forgeries of, of this type. And he simply had no background at all in investigating historical forgeries. Despite this air of confidence at Newsweek and an atmosphere of great excitement as they prepared to publish one of the great stories of the post-war, Parker wanted the most thorough and complete examination of the diaries possible. His confidence in the story, which was shrouded in great secrecy at Newsweek, seemed unaffected as I pointed out that there was no evidence that the diaries were genuine or fake. There simply was no evidence. He listened intently as I described how the diaries could be faked, and also why it was not at all suspicious for them to be coming to light 40 years later. We discussed in some detail the type of examination which would conclusively prove the diaries genuine or fake. This was precisely the approach which Newsweek wanted, and they were willing to give me sufficient time and resources to accomplish it. I was, however, quite concerned about a sense that the Hitler diary story, without any proven basis, had taken on a life of its own. A sense that the train was rolling, that the historians being consulted were so overawed by the apparent importance of the story that they were not considering the diaries with the same scrutiny they would if in an academic setting. It might be difficult for people in the news media to appreciate how alluring the spotlight of the news is and that suddenly being transported from the academic world to that of interviews in national publications and on television network news might result in a focusing on the established story rather than the basis of the story. My concerns about Newsweek's position, should I discover the diaries to be fake, were discussed with Parker and Ted Slate, officially Newsweek's librarian, a title which masks Slate's real role and responsibilities at the magazine. 
It was Slate who had originally contacted me and finally convinced me to listen to their proposal. I was not concerned with Slate's reaction, but Parker had many trips to Europe as well as considerable time and emotional energy invested in the story. I was well satisfied after our meeting that Parker would accept my findings, even if that meant an end to his story. I could not have accepted a situation where Newsweek would have shopped around for a second expert had I reported the diaries to be fakes. Newsweek had, had made their deal for $3.5 million and stipulated that their own expert would have to examine the complete Hitler archive as part of the agreement to purchase publication rights. Stern agreed, and I was to spend much of the coming week in Zurich investigating and examining the diaries. Publication was scheduled for the 1st of May, two weeks after my initial meeting at Newsweek. Time was a consideration, but it was not a problem. There was no doubt that the question of the diary's authenticity would be resolved within the coming week. But, as at almost every other critical juncture in the saga, the story would continue on, not as a result of anything planned by the perpetrator, but by the action of one of the victims of the hoax, this time the Sunday Times of London. After two days of delays caused by the negotiating of the final details of the agreement between Stern and Newsweek, Newsweek learned that the Sunday Times of London would be publishing excerpts from the diaries four days later, one week ahead of schedule. With only a few days left before this new publication date, it would be impossible for me to examine the diaries. Newsweek would treat the diaries as a news story and report it as such. My role as Newsweek's consultant appeared to be at an end. The reaction of the media to the release of Newsweek's Hitler diary issue was staggering. During the two previous days, the Murdoch papers had been bannering the discovery of the diaries and quoting from them. But Newsweek's treatment of the story appeared to give considerable weight to the possibility that they were genuine. Newsweek's coverage consisted of 24 columns discussing the diary's text and provenance, while only five were devoted to the question, are they genuine? And three were devoted to Weinberg's A Scholar's Appraisal. The magazine certainly noted the possibility that they were not genuine, but the significantly greater emphasis on the content of the diaries, rather than their integrity, would lead to considerable criticism in the aftermath of the hoax. I'd add one other point here. This uh, line right here, are they genuine, was the uh, line that Newsweek received a great deal of criticism for because they had a, a complete campaign plan for television uh, before I came into this. And this cover didn't have that line on there. And this is what appeared in all of the TV uh, advertisements was this cover, but without are they genuine on it. The attacks on the diary's authenticity were immediate and generally unfounded and misinformed. I had naively believed that once the existence of the diaries was revealed, Stern would be pressured into making them available for examination. I expected the thrust of the media coverage to be devoted to the fact that the diaries themselves had never been examined, and that until they were examined, the story should focus on Stern's responsibility to do this. The opportunity to be interviewed on national television into national publications was too alluring for many historians and others to resist. There was little news value in an opinion that judgment of the diary's importance had to be reserved until Stern allowed a thorough examination. Consequently, these individuals were willing to discuss areas in which they were only speculating or had very little knowledge. This is Stern's news conference with Trevor Roper in the end, that's Peter Koch in the middle, and Heidemann holding the diary uh, at the end. 
The spectacle of two respected historians shouting at each other at this Hamburg news conference, one of them being physically ejected, was perhaps overshadowed by their both changing their positions and both therefore being wrong at one time or another. <laughs> the fact that both were in what should have been viewed as conflict of interest situations was never mentioned. One was the director of the Sunday Times, that's Hugh Trevor Roper, which had bought the publication rights. And he had been ordered by Rupert Murdoch to go to Zurich to examine the diaries. And in fact, when he said he needed 10 days to prove all the historical points, Rupert Murdoch said, give me your best guess. And he got suckered into that, and he gave him his best guess. The other person, Irving, was the editor of a forthcoming book, The Diary of Hitler's, Hitler's Physician, which would certainly not sell very well if Hitler's own diaries were available. I was amazed that, you know, while this was not, no great secret, either thing, that no one ever focused on the fact that these two people fighting it out had a lot of money at stake on both sides of it. But they were joined by many others who were willing to state that Hitler was never able to write after the July 20th, 1944 assassination attempt, while there were literally hundreds of documents signed by him after this date, that he wrote only in pencil, which is only true for official uh, notes and memoranda sent to him in his office. He then wrote in a, in a blue pencil, but otherwise everything was in ink. Uh, there was also the serious discussion of the probability that an East German forgery factory had created them, and speculation that the Russians were behind them in an attempt to weaken Western society. That was actually mentioned by the, ch by the uh, Chancellor of Germany. One week after the release of the story, Newsweek would suggest that references to Gone with the Wind could be sought in the diary's text, that an analysis of syntax might answer the question, and that the FBI would be able to lift Hitler's fingerprints off the pages with the use of new laser technology. An incredible reaction to a forgery so bad that only a few minutes of physical examination would be sufficient to demonstrate numerous errors in handwriting and materials. Peter Koch, the editor-in-chief of Stern, arrived in New York one week after the first news of the diary's existence. He had brought the first and last volumes with him. Newsweek's Maynard Parker and Ted Slate negotiated with Koch Saturday night. The time frame here that's important is that Saturday night is when national magazines close at 6 o'clock. They can make changes up to about midnight, and in a real emergency on Sunday morning, they can actually take a magazine apart, but they then have to physically take it apart so that it's possible to, be, to even change a story at 10 or 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. When you get involved in this, uh, you know how to deal with the, the journalists because you know that if you tell somebody from Time Magazine something on Monday, they can't use it for six days. <laughs> but a television person is quite a different thing. So you get, you, the, the times become quite critical. Uh, Newsweek had this story uh, for the second issue uh, which I, in which I had stated that uh, there should be no further discussion of the diaries at all until somebody proved that they were genuine. And this was then pulled out on this particular Saturday night that I'm referring to here. Uh, the relationship between Stern and Newsweek had soured very considerably during the preceding week because uh, Koch had accused Newsweek of unethically breaking an agreement not to reveal information shown to Parker and Weinberg during negotiations. Stern had also intended to withhold the text concerning the Jews and the Holocaust until the following year. And Newsweek's release of this information shown here had infuriated Koch. Koch therefore refused to let me see the diaries on Sunday, and once again, the opportunity to put an end to the story uh, passed by. CBS News invited Koch and Rudolf Hess's son, Wolf, to appear on the morning news. 
In a telephone conversation arranged by CBS, Koch and I discussed the deplorable situation over the question of authenticity and agreed to meet at CBS's studios. It was on the set of the morning news that I first saw the diaries. I went through them with Diane Sawyer and pointed out many factors which proved that they were false. To repeat this analysis to Koch would have resulted in his dismissal of me and my only opportunity to finally put an end to the hoax. I must say at this point, CBS was incredibly helpful uh, while they diverted Koch with various makeup and, and other things. Uh, they took the diaries and photographed them completely so that should Koch close up his diaries and say, the hell with all of you, I'm going back to Germany, this is a legitimate story, we then had everything photographed. Uh, and you could, and I could at least say I had seen the diaries and then be able to go ahead and uh, disprove um, their authenticity. And initially, um, no one knew that, that uh, Koch was in New York. And when the Newsweek negotiations broke down, I called CBS and told them where he was staying and in what name he was using, uh, Diane Sawyer. He believed with absolute sincerity that there was no possibility the diaries were forgeries. He told her that he could so see no reason for further examinations because three experts had proclaimed them genuine. And the testimony of any one of these experts in a criminal case would be sufficient grounds for conviction. During a lengthy breakfast after leaving CBS, I realized Koch would never be convinced without overwhelming physical evidence. And I therefore avoided discussing the diaries for two hours. The invitation to analyze the diaries was largely a result of a camaraderie which developed during this breakfast in which we discussed ski racing and helicopter skiing. We shared many mutual friends and experiences in the ski world. The Hitler diary hoax, which had begun and was perpetrated by decisions based on personal rather than journalistic considerations, was finally beginning to unravel. Not because Peter Koch thought the diary should be thoroughly examined, but because he couldn't see any harm in letting a, a fellow skier go over them. It was personally very flattering, but instantly illustrative of how the diary hoax had gone so far. I was now given complete access to the two volumes of diaries, allowed to photocopy them, and spend as much time examining them as I wanted. I began to work with Frank Mueller Mai, Stern's photo editor, a title which, like Slates at Newsweeks, may not really be indicative of his complete responsibilities with the magazine. Koch was absolutely certain of the outcome of my examination. He asked me to be interviewed on a German radio program the next morning, an invitation which I knew would be inappropriate. He then departed for an afternoon of shopping at FAO Schwartz. <laughs> he returned to the office at about 5 o'clock, and I said I wanted to talk to him. I had, by that point, almost everything laid out on tables, absolutely conclusive proof. He was far too busy. He had to discuss a telephone system that he had just bought for his car, and his big question was, would it work in Germany? I told him I wanted to meet with him that evening, but he was very busy with business. It turned out he was at a Broadway play. Frank Mueller who had accompanied him from Hamburg, treated the situation very seriously and followed it carefully. I showed him the enormous discrepancy in general handwriting habits the complete impossibility that Hitler had written the 1945 volume, and a careful analysis of letter patterns to illustrate without question that the 1932 volume was forged also. We discussed how this had gone so far, and the importance of locating any records within Stern relevant to the origin of the forgeries which were shown to their original experts. At midnight that night, Mueller Mai told me that the third issue of the diaries had been stopped. That was Stern's publication night. 
and that an internal investigation had begun. Coke had been located at his play and would meet with me first thing in the morning. We also called Hamburg to get a trusted editor to go to the files and try to find out everything that was still in the files about where the other examples had come from. Now you can see here just how outrageous the examples are. These are the, uh, these are, this is genuine Hitler handwriting in the top row, and these are the diaries here. And it's a joke. These are mainly uh, to illustrate the capital letters. And there are no exceptions. They're all that bad all the way through. Also, which is one of my favorite mistakes that almost all forgers make, this H here, this is the forger's H from the word Himmler. This is a genuine Hitler signature here. What he did was to copy the, the capital H from Hitler's signature, not realizing that Hitler, like almost everyone else, uses different capital letters when writing the name, signing it, than they do in the text. So when he then used the, wrote the word Himmler in the text, he used the same H that Hitler would have used in his signature. But Hitler, as is indicative of almost everybody, used, used a completely different H, which you see in the, in the word Heute at the top. I did not look forward to meeting with Koch that next morning. <laughs> He'd been very trusting in letting me examine the diaries but I realized it was the same trust based upon these personal considerations that led him to accept the diary's authenticity without question. <coughs> I had been told by Mulemai that he would be forced to resign as a result of the scandal that was coming. And his physical reaction to the evidence I laid out on a conference table was shocking. I described him in Newsweek as stunned. Mulemai, writing in Stern several weeks later, recalled, quote, after only a short look, Peter Koch turned as pale as the paint on the wall. His only question was how the diaries had passed the tests of the three experts who compared them to the Federal Archives examples. It was very evident he had never read the experts' reports. He telephoned the new chairman of Gruner and Yar, who had succeeded the one who bought the diaries, and it was agreed that I would go to Hamburg the next day to examine all of the materials bought by Heidemann and to provide an independent analysis of how the magazine had been swindled. The Hitler diary hoax had finally come to an end after two years. The condemnation of Stern by journalists throughout the world was no less immediate nor severe than by its own staff members, few of whom were ever involved in the story. In its mea culpa issue of May 19th, they criticized, quote, the higher-ups at the publishers and in the editorial offices for failing to have the diaries properly examined for two years. They attributed this to an exaggerated secrecy and fear for the exclusiveness of their super scoop. They continued, quote, the biggest journalistic scoop in post-war history had become even bigger than the few people in on it had ever hoped in their fondest dreams. It was the biggest journalistic blunder of all times. In their blatant presentation of Heidemann's hoax, the people responsible had correctly predicted a sensation a la Watergate. Unfortunately, it was a Watergate for Stern. For the first time, Stern was accurate on the subject of the Hitler diaries. I'll share one final, this was a souvenir done up by the Bundesarchiv in keeping with the seriousness of the whole story, which is a picture of Hitler reading the first issue of Stern magazine that his diaries have been discovered. <laughs> can have the lights sir. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know of, of other news stories that ever get as out of hand as this one did, and then not having been involved in anything else. But I think that the real, the human element was just incredible uh, with the way people uh, had to have secrecy, which was very reasonable. The, the day that I went to Newsweek, they, the secrecy there was incredible. I had to sign a statement that I would never reveal anything until it was out in the press. Um, we went to Mrs. Graham's suite where it was very easy to control access and everyone was working there. There were translators who were brought from different cities staying at different hotels where we were translating individual sections of the communications from Stern. Uh, shredders were grinding up typewriter uh, ribbons. Uh, food was being brought in. There were literally were armed guards. In fact, I had trouble getting in and Ted Slake kept saying, but I made up the list and the guard kept saying, but who are you? And, uh, <laughs> It, it was very, very tight security around there. Just the, apparently on the, th on the Thursday night before uh, all of this came out, Rupert Murdoch at a party just mentioned that he had bought publication rights, and that made the nightly news that night. Uh, and it was very much a sense that the train was rolling, and that the last thing anybody wanted was for me to stand in front of the train and say, wait, you know, you've really got to slow down and examine this. And um, you know, I, f I felt good working with Newsweek. I thought that while they emotionally were involved and they, made, they did make some mistakes, they made fewer than some of the other people made. Uh, Time Magazine could, could say that they were very objective, but they hadn't won out in the bidding war. So they were in a somewhat different position. CBS, I thought, was very good. Uh, I know that there was a fight within CBS as to whether to have me or have a New York auctioneer who specializes in autographs who I was told and would be much more entertaining than I was, um, <laughs> because I would only say that I have no idea whether they're genuine or fakes. There's no evidence and there's no proof whatsoever, but that he would say whatever would get headlines. So um, I, I sort of learned an awful lot about the media and, and, and the way it works um, in terms of just how human it is, and also from the standpoint of, of how ruthless it is in, on, on a story like this. Um, Experts don't get, all, don't get involved in these kinds of stories all that often, and it was kind of easy to see why people don't want to get too mixed up in it. Uh, apparently, in, in my own case, I was very fortunate because almost everything I did on television was live, and it wasn't edited. So therefore, nothing could get twisted around, and it was exactly what was said. Uh, and I guess in a breaking story, it probably is the case most of the time that you do have a control over it. But it, uh, it was absolutely remarkable what went on at, at Stern Magazine. And interestingly enough, the trial now is focusing on the people at Stern Magazine, not on Heidemann and not on the forger. But the judge is the one who has turned it now onto the people at Stern Magazine uh, and just what their role. How could they have allowed this to happen? How could the chairman pay $5 million on something as crazy as this? Uh, I mean, he, he was an accomplished businessman who had worked his way up there. How could he believe a story about driving, Hyden's driving down the road and they throw the package one way and then they turn the cars around and throw it the other way? It'd be the most obvious thing in the world that would happen. Uh, how can they take statements like the, the ones that I read to you from Newsweek? How could anyone believe this? Uh, it, it, was, it, it really is, I think, a question of greed. Uh, so overwhelming people that to the chance to have this type of thing. Uh, it really does make me wonder about other news stories that are based upon handwriting and all of these other things. It's in page three of the New York Times on Sunday. There's a story based upon a Richard Nixon letter. If that letter would not be genuine, that news story falls apart. It's whether Nixon made a private trip to Vietnam. Uh, I don't remember what year, but it was, it's a very interesting letter. I'm sure it is genuine. But there could be other things. There's this thing I read in New York Magazine flying down here this afternoon uh, about the authenticity of material. May, uh, about regular material may or may not be right, but the person who wrote it certainly doesn't know. Uh, and in last night's, could have been yesterday's New York Times, 
the story on uh, that sailor uh, who disappeared off of Australia, and they showed the analysis of handwriting from a note that arrived in a margarine jar that the Australians say is fake because the margarine jar was made after the date of the note. Uh, but the family says it's genuine. I looked in the paper, and this, the handwriting expert said, well, of course, just look at the word on. They're, they're absolutely not identical. They're not made in the same way. The pen didn't start in the same position. Uh, you, after the Hitler Diaries, I really do wonder how many of these things are very accurate. Thank you.